Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. Today's episode is the third and final part of an occasionally personal journey through one of the better summers for films during the 1980s, the summer of 1986. Our first episode covered the films of May and June, and our second, the films of July. Today, we'll concentrate on the final month of the summer movie season, August. Friday, August 1st, would be historic in one sense. But before we get there, we need to talk about Friday the 13th, Part 6, Jason Lives. Sure, we were promised Part 4 was the final chapter, but how do you stop a money-making monster that audiences refuse to let die? Paramount would answer that question in three years, but for now, the producers of Part 6 were smart enough to wisely bring in Tom McLaughlin, the director of the 1983 indie supernatural horror hit One Dark Night, to both write and direct, and gave him unexpected latitude in shaping the story. His only note from the producers was to find a way to bring back Jason and make him the bad guy again. McLaughlin would be the one who molded Jason Voorhees into the paranormal phenomenon we all know and tolerate today. But then, retconning the incidences to multiple previous movies in order to get you to your preferred past was revolutionary. Not that audiences were all that impressed. Jason Lives would carry a $3 million budget, 40% more than Part 5 A New Beginning, but would, after opening in second place with more than $6.75 million from 1,610 theaters, end up grossing a total of $19.4 million, or 2.6 less than A New Beginning. Two things that would shock some in Hollywood. This would be the first Friday the 13th film since the original to get some half-decent notices, and it would be the only film in the series where the studio would actually ask the director of the film to put in more gore and more murders when it usually needed to pull those things out to secure an R rating. It would also be the only Friday the 13th to feature zero nudity. Okay, what history was made on this day? This would be the day that the first Marvel Comics character would have their own motion picture. DC characters had already been in movies for decades, but it was finally time to put a Marvel character on screen. And of course, it would be a popular character recognized around the world, right? Like Spider-Man or Iron Man or Captain America or Thor, right? No! Howard the Duck. Yes, Howard the Duck, the foul-mouthed, horny, cigar-chomping aquatic fowl with absolutely zero superhero powers. Only George Lucas could see all of the various Marvel characters that existed in the mid-80s and go, that one, the duck. I'm George Lucas, I can make this work. But he couldn't. The biggest problem with the film was that Lucas was trusting the film to his good friend Willard Hewick. The two met as students at the USC Film School, and together they, along with Hook's wife, Gloria Katz, would create American Graffiti, and Lucas would have Hike help shape the screenplay for Star Wars into the coherent mess we all know and love today. Hook and Katz also wrote the screenplay for Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and for their friendship and loyalty over the years, they were entrusted with the keys to the duck. They wrote the screenplay, she produced, and he directed. And it's not like he never directed a feature film before. It's just that between Messiah of Evil, French Postcards, and Best Defense, 
his films were not very good. The biggest problem with the film I have is its uneven tone. Howard the Duck wants to be a family-friendly PG movie, but it also wants to be raunchy in a way that's inappropriate for a PG movie. And if you can't get the tone right, you're going to have a lousy film. Not that the movie is a complete failure. Leah Thompson, fresh off Back to the Future, does her best mashup of Cyndi Lauper and Madonna as the lead singer and guitarist of an all-girl rock band called Cherry Bomb. Tim Robbins, still a couple years away from his breakthrough role as Nuke Lelouch in Bull Durham, does as good as a job as he can playing against a guy in a creepy-looking life-size humanoid duck suit. And there's a good supporting cast, including Paul Guilfoyle, Jeffrey Jones, David Paymer, and Holly Robinson as one of Thompson's Cherry Bomb bandmates. The studio, Universal Pictures, got to see the film a few weeks before its opening, after spending $38 million making the movie and several million more, trying to hype it up as having, quote, more adventure than humanly possible, unquote. It is said that after that screening for executives, two of them, Frank Price and Sidney Scheinberg, got into a fist fight outside the screening room over which one of them was to blame for giving the film the green light. Both executives denied the rumor of the fight, but Price would be gone from the studio not two months after the film opened. Well, after the film laid an egg. While it would open in third place that weekend with $5 million from 1,554 theaters, that would still be 25% less than Jason Lives would make that weekend. And you could have made 13 of those movies for the cost of one Howard the Duck. And it wouldn't get much better after that. In its third week of release, Howard would lose about 40% of its opening weekend theaters and would fall from 8th place in its second week all the way to 20th place in its third. After three months, Howard the Duck would be out of theaters with only $16.3 million in ticket sales, and it would be another three years before the next Marvel Comics adaptation would be made. But The Punisher would be released direct-to-video as would 1990's Captain America. 1994's Fantastic Four movie would never officially be released, with good reason. In fact, it would be, wouldn't be until Blade was released in 1998 that another Marvel Comics character would appear on movie screens. But there would be a happy ending for Miss Thompson thanks to the failure of this movie. The press for Howard the Duck leading up to its opening was so bad, she would accept a role in the movie Some Kind of Wonderful that she had previously turned down. She would state in an interview years later that she needed to get on another movie right away for fear of not working in Hollywood again, and that she never would have accepted the, ro the role of Amanda Jones had it not been for Howard the Duck's impending failure. It would be on the set of Some Kind of Wonderful where Thompson would meet director Howard Deutsch, who would become her husband in 1989. They're still married, having just celebrated their 31st anniversary on July 23rd, and they have two actress children, Madeline Deutsch and Zoe Deutsch. Also opening on August 1st was Choke Canyon, directed by Chuck Ball from United Film Distribution, featuring Stephen Collins as a cowboy scientist who is trying to develop an alternative energy source in the deserts of southern Utah, and... Good to Go, directed by Blaine Novak from Island Visual Arts. 
featuring Art Garfunkel as a Washington, D.C.-based journalist who's working a story about a murder inside the city's burgeoning go-go music scene. The film also stars Robert Doquai and Harris Ulin, and features cameos from Angelica Houston and Fab Five Freddy. Some of the live music footage was shot by Big Audio Dynamite's Don Lentz, but the film would perform so badly that it would be pulled from theaters after two weeks and released on video as Short Fuse a few months later. You can find a decent copy of the film on YouTube. It's at its best when it's focusing on that go-go music scene. And although it would open in very limited release in April and slowly build up over the late spring and early summer, Cinecom Pictures would finally send the Merchant Ivory adaptation of E.M. Forrester's A Room with a View out to theaters nationwide on this day. And finally, European Classics would have a sneak preview of La Mont en Douche, the quote-unquote new romantic comedy from Edouard Molinero, the director of La Caja Fall, featuring Daniel Attil as a man who ends up living with his new girlfriend, real-life girlfriend Emmanuel Bayer, under the same roof as his soon-to-be ex-wife and her new boyfriend. Except L'Amour en Douche was not really new. It had opened in Paris a full year and a half earlier, and it eventually would not open in America at all. This sneak was literally your one chance to have seen the movie in theaters on this side of the Atlantic. Wednesday, August 6th, saw the arrival of Peter Smith's No Surrender, a British comedy released in America through Circle Films. In a seedy Liverpool bar, two groups of opposing revelers, Protestants and Catholics, are accidentally scheduled to celebrate New Year's Eve at the same pub at the same time. Joanne Whaley, Ian Hart, and Linus Roach are probably the only people you might be familiar with, but there is a hilarious cameo from Elvis Costello as a magician. Friday, August 8th, would be another day that would alter the course of American film history forever. But before we get there, we need to talk about Blake Edwards' A Fine Mess. Blake Edwards, when you see a list of what he was involved with throughout his career, you can't help but know that he was a singular talent. He was the creator of the iconic Private Eye series Peter Gunn. He was the director of Operation Petticoat and Breakfast at Tiffany's and Days of Wine and Roses and Victor Victoria. And most importantly, he was the creative force behind the Pink Panther movie series, which makes everything he did after 1982's Victor Victoria that much melancholier. He ruined his Pink Panther legacy by first making a movie version of one of those TV clip shows trying to frame a new Clouseau movie around deleted scenes of Sellers' performances from other Pink Panther movies after his passing. Sellers' wife even sued Edwards and MGM, claiming the film would diminish her late husband's reputation, and she would be awarded more than a million dollars in damages from the courts. Then Edwards proceeded to make another Pink Panther movie without Sellers, this time using American Ted Wass as an inept detective trying to find the missing Clouseau. Edwards was so sure the Pink Panther formula was so not dependent on Sellers as Clouseau that he signed Wass to a six-picture deal. There would not be a second Pink Panther film with him. Then Edwards tried to remake the great Francois Truffaut movie The Man Who Loved Women, 
which was a disaster even with Burt Reynolds as the man who loved so many women, including Edward's daughter, Jennifer Edwards. And then there was Mickey and Maud, a horrid rom-com where Dudley Moore is married to Anne Reinking and in a relationship with Amy Irving, and the comedy comes from him knocking both of them up around the same time. Which brings us to a fine mess. A mess, absolutely. How fine is it? There's not even a quantum of acceptableness. It was supposed to be a modern remake of the great Laurel and Hardy short The Music Box, and semi-improvised like Edwards' late 60s hit The Party, but like many a Columbia Pictures movie of this era just before the arrival of Sir David Putnam to the lot, it's an incomprehensible mess. Sure, there's a subplot about a piano in there, but one of the lessons Hollywood keeps forgetting is that you don't need to remake something that was already pretty much perfect to begin with, especially something that was only a half hour long and is literally one gag repeated over and over, ever so slightly exaggerated with each reoccurrence. Which is why Edwards had to come up with a whole other main plot about Ted Danson and Howie Mandel on the run from the mob and the police when they stumble into a horse race fixing scheme gone awry. The reviews were savage and the audiences small. A fine mess would open to ninth place with $2.62 million from 1,162 theaters and would lose more than a third of those theaters after just one week. It would lose all of its theaters except for a few dollar house playdates after four weeks and would limp to a final gross of $6.03 million. Now, how great were the 80s? A guy could literally ask for his writing and directing credits on a studio film to read however he wanted. Like, why would you call yourself just Steve Holland when everybody called you Savage because you once kicked a kid in the teeth during a youth soccer game? So when he got to make his first movie, 1985's Better Off Dead, he got Warner Brothers to list him as Savage Steve Holland, and a career was born. Better Off Dead was an instant cult classic, which of course means that it wasn't widely seen when it first came out. But those who did see it loved it and would get their friends to see it when it was finally released on home video. The movie did well enough that Warners would back his second film, One Crazy Summer. John Cusack would play the lead in both movies. But this time, instead of playing a lovesick young man outside of Sacramento, he played a lovesick young man who must write and illustrate a love story for his application to get into the Rhode Island School of Design. Demi Moore plays the love interest, and the supporting cast reads as a murderer's row of comedic film acting. Curtis Armstrong, Billy Bird, Joe Flaherty, Rich Hall, William Hickey, Rich Little, Mark Medcalf, Joel Murray, Taylor Negron, Jeremy Piven, and Tom Villard. But, like Better Off Dead, One Crazy Summer would be an instant cult classic, ignored by most, but beloved by those who saw it. The film would open in fourth place with $3.43 million from 984 theaters and would finish its run a few months later with $13.4 million. The last major release of the week would be De Laurentiis Entertainment Group's Transformers the Movie. At the time of its release, the Transformers cartoon series had been running for two years 
and the movie was designed to both capture not-quite-yet-fans by showing off what the Transformers could do on the big screen and get fans in by coming up with a story that would bridge seasons two and three. Nelson Shin, who produced the television series, directed the movie, and he would have a budget six times larger than an average episode to work with. A good portion of that budget, though, would go to a world-class group of voice talents, including Eric Idle, Judd Nelson, Leonard Nimoy, Robert Stack, and, in their last roles before their passings, Scatman Crothers and Orson Welles. I've never seen The Transformers in any form, movie or television, so I can't attest to its quality, but the box office numbers show whatever would drive the Nostalgic Feud franchise 21 years later wasn't around just yet. The Transformers movie would open in 14th place with just under 1.8 million from 990 theaters. It would lose half that audience in the second week and half that audience in the third. After four weeks, it would be out of theaters, having earned only $5.5 million. There is one other movie that opened in limited release this week that I need to talk about before I get to the big one, although this one was pretty big too. If there ever was a movie based on a Stephen King story that didn't really feel like a Stephen King story, this would be it. The Body really isn't a horror story, and the producers of the film knew it. When the posters for the newly retitled Stand By Me were released, there was no mention of the author or his novella, in sharp contrast to several recent movies that would give the author a possessory credit in the title on the poster. Stephen King's Cat's Eye, Stephen King's The Dead Zone, Stephen King's Firestarter, Stephen King's Silver Bullet. But, truth be told, the Stephen King name, at least when it came to movies, was all but played out at this time. The majority of King adaptations in the 1983 to 1985 time frame were pretty bad, the exceptions being the two made by master filmmakers, John Carpenter's Christine and David Cronenberg's Dead Zone. We couldn't quite put Rob Reiner in that place yet, as Stand By Me would only be his third feature film as a director. His first, of course, was the masterful This Is Spinal Tap, which was shaped out of hours of improvisational footage with his cast. And the second was The Sure Thing, a better movie than a teen sex comedy ever deserved to be. But it would be Stand By Me that would put Reiner in the master filmmaker category. Four 12-year-old boys from a small town in Oregon go on a day-long adventure to find the body of a missing boy just outside town. Corey Feldman, Jerry O'Connell, River Phoenix, and Will Wheaton play the boys, and they are supported by another great group of actors. It would be Kiefer Sutherland's first American movie, John Cusack's second movie with Reiner, and would also feature Casey Shamashko, Marshall Bell, and Bruce Kirby, as well as Richard Dreyfus as the adult version of Wheaton's character, who was telling the story of his trek with his friends in flashback. Stand By Me finds the right balance between joy and melancholy without leaning too strong into nostalgia, and one has to wonder just how different a movie it could have been had it been directed by the producer's first choice, Adrian Lyne. Yes, the director of Flashdance and Nine and a Half Weeks. The producers and director couldn't agree on a price, and Reiner would come aboard soon thereafter. 
The film was set up at Embassy Pictures, where Reiner had made Spinal Tap and The Sure Thing, but a few months later, the owners of Embassy Pictures, including mega-producer Norman Lear, sold the company to Columbia Pictures, and the new corporate owners were ready to cancel the movie for lack of faith in the material. Lear put up the entire $8 million budget himself, which ended up triggering a clause in the original contract that left the film without a distributor. The final movie was screened for the powerful Hollywood agent Michael Ovitz, and Ovitz would help sell the film to Columbia Pictures. But first, there was the issue of the title. At this point, it was still being called The Body, which didn't sit too well with Columbia. According to co-producer and co-writer Ray Gideon, Columbia felt The Body sounded too much like a sex film or a bodybuilder film. Reiner was already planning on using the 1961 Ben E. King hit song for the closing credits and suggested Stand By Me as the title. The film would open in 16 theaters in major cities and would gross damn near a quarter million dollars. The second week, it was still playing in just 16 theaters, but its gross actually went up 5%. It would expand to 745 theaters in its third week, coming in second place with $3.8 million. And then, in its fourth, fifth, and sixth weeks of release, it was the number one film in America. By Thanksgiving weekend, four months later, it would still be playing in 716 theaters, and it would still be in the top ten. It would continue to play for several more months, finally finishing its box office run in March of 1987 with more than $52.28 million in ticket sales. Which finally brings us to the movie I've been teasing for two episodes now, the first film from Shelton J. Lee. Tube socks, tube socks, tweet fight out. Tweet fight out. Tweet fight out. Hi, I'm Spike Lee, but I'm not directing. I do this. It pays the rent, puts food on the table, butter on my whole wheat bread. Anyway, I had this new comedy coming out. It's a very funny film. She's got to have it. Check this out. Nola was something special. She had this amazing effect on men. Please, baby, please, baby, please, baby, 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 please. Good night. Good night? Wait, 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 wait. Is Jamie there? I was the best thing that ever happened to Nola, darling. Ask her, she'll tell you that herself. Why, she worshipped me. I've never seen anybody who like to look at themselves more than you do. Don't you ever get tired? Never happened, baby. Stop, stop. <laughs> Nola, stop. Stop. Nola knew what she wanted. And she's got to have it. Noel Darling would never marry a non-modeling, non-weightlifting, pseudo-black man like yourself. You know, Noel, you've done me wrong. Please, baby, please, baby, please, baby, 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 please. No, Jamie, you're okay. You know, I've been thinking. I'm going to hook you up. With Nola, you get four days, I'll get three. It's mighty black of you. But I get the weekend, so... bugging out right you're gonna go you're gonna go you're gonna go you're gonna go if you don't i'll still be here on this corner tube socks tube socks three fight hours three fight hours tube socks three fight hours fight out fight out fight out
I had first heard of Spike Lee when I saw his NYU student thesis film, Joe's Bedside Barbershop, We Cut Heads, sometime in late 1985 or early 1986. I believe it might have played at the New Art or some other repertory theater in Los Angeles that was doing some kind of student film festival. The film had won the recent NYU graduate a Student Academy Award in 1984, and I remember thinking that there was no way this Spike Lee guy was a student filmmaker. Even at 53 minutes, the quality of the performances, of the storytelling, of the pacing, far exceeded most of the feature films that were coming out at the time. So when I saw the trailer for She's Gotta Have It for the first time at the Nickelodeon Theater in Santa Cruz, I was jealous that I wouldn't be able to play this movie at my own theater and watch it any time I wanted. Sure, we traded passes with the Nickelodeon so I could still go see it any time I wanted, But one of the great things about working at a movie theater is taking your breaks inside the theaters watching the movies. So while it didn't get to Santa Cruz until several weeks after it opened in New York City or even San Francisco, I made damn sure that I was at that first show at the Nick. I had an idea of what to expect from the film, but I didn't expect it to be the movie that it was. I don't know if I'd ever seen a black woman portrayed on a movie screen quite the way Tracy Camilla Johns played Nola Darling. That character and her story, the way they were allowed to be open and free and in some cases treated like the queen worth fighting for, these were themes that were radical in a way that I couldn't possibly foresee going in. She's Gotta Have It didn't just alter how I saw movies, it altered how I saw women. It altered how I saw love and sex and relationships. She's Gotta Have It made me a better man, which wasn't that hard to do since I was only 18 and would still be a year away from my first real significant sustainable relationship. Now, the movie is not perfect. If you've seen it, you know there's one scene in there that's rather off-putting, and in later years, even Lee himself would express regret of having it in there. It doesn't really work for the movie as a whole, and it takes the viewer out of the movie for a few moments, which can be fatal for a lesser film. I wish it could have been a bigger platform for better things for Miss Johns and Tommy Redmond Hicks and John Canada Terrell, because they are all exceptional in the film. And Spike? It's little wonder he became one of the best filmmakers of the past 35 years, and even less a wonder that his character Mars Blackman became a cultural touchstone and commercial spokesperson. Some actors never get that kind of signature role in their entire career, and he just gives it to himself his first time out of the gate. Island Pictures would release She's Gotta Have It in a single theater this weekend, the Cinema Studio One on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, just across the street from the Lincoln Center. In those first three days, it would sell $28,473 worth of tickets. The film was so popular, the Cinema Studio was showing it seven times a day, from 1 p.m. to 11.25 p.m. Imagine how much higher that gross would have been if they had had an additional show at 11.15 a.m. They probably could have squeezed in a 9.30 a.m. show and a 1.15 a.m. show on Fridays and Saturdays. Man, 10 shows of the same movie playing on one screen in the course of a single day. That would have been crazy. Slowly but surely, Island would add more screens, First in Los Angeles, then Chicago, 
then Seattle and Dallas and Miami and New Orleans, and finally to smaller outhouses in towns like Santa Cruz. The film would play for nearly five months and would become one of the highest grossing and most profitable indie films of the decade, taking in over $8 million in ticket sales on a budget of just $175,000. Spike would also change how would-be filmmakers like myself would learn about making movies. About a year after the release of She's Gotta Have It, Fireside Books would release his book Spike Lee's Gotta Have It, which included the full screenplay for the movie, his personal journals from, from when he was writing and making the movie, his production notes during production, and an interview about the film with Nelson George. Spike would release one of these books for every movie he made, at least through Malcolm X, and I bought and read every single one of them. I wish I still had them. They've long been out of print, and there are a few copies of the books available secondhand from Amazon third-party retailers, that is, if you're willing to pay 80 to $855 for a copy. To be completely honest, I truly believe Spike Lee is the best filmmaker to come out of the 80s, and I welcome every new movie he makes, as long as he keeps making them. After 34 years and 24 films, 5 documentaries, 7 short films, and 18 films produced or executive produced for other filmmakers, I still look forward to anything he does. If someone were to use the modern internet vernacular to describe where I stand with him, they'd say I'm a stan. I stan Spike Lee. Wednesday, August 13th saw the release of Ermgard von Zermühlen's The Liberation of Auschwitz from the National Center for Jewish Film at Brandeis University. The 60-minute documentary is culled from footage shot by photographers in the first Soviet forces to liberate the concentration camp in January and February 1945. Images so powerful that nearly 20 minutes of the original footage was used as evidence at the Nuremberg trials. Most of the footage shot would sit in Soviet archives until the filmmaker and his brother, West German filmmakers who had previously made documentaries about Buchenwald and Bergen-Belsen, were able to successfully lobby use of this footage. What's interesting about the film is that the filmmakers intercut the Soviet footage with an interview of one of the photographers who shot the footage 40 years earlier, who admits that even amongst the documenting of all this living horror, there were staged opportunities for Soviet propaganda. One scene, of Russian troops being embraced by healthy and spirited now-former prisoners after busting down the camp's barricades, was deemed too fake for even the Soviet propaganda machine and would never be seen by the public until this documentary. It is available to watch on YouTube. Friday, August 15th, saw the release of a lot of lousy movies, a couple of decent ones, and an overlooked gem by one of cinema's consistently underrated filmmakers. Mark L. Lester would not be considered one of cinema's consistently underrated filmmakers. Lester got his start making low-budget movies for the drive-in circuit with titillating titles such as Gold of the Amazon Women, Stunts, Truck Stop Women, and White House Madness. He'd get his first mainstream success when he directed Roller Boogie, part of a trend of roller skating disco-themed movies that came out in the 1979 and 1980 time frame, 
including Skate Town USA and Xanadu. He'd also find more success with the Canadian-made exploitation film Class of 1984, the adaptation of Stephen King's Firestarter, and the Arnold Schwarzenegger action film Commando. Armed and Dangerous from Columbia Pictures would be his first out-and-out comedy. It would also be his last. John Candy and Eugene Levy star as two down-on-their-luck guys who become partners at a security firm after they lose their main jobs, who take it upon themselves to investigate a rash of robberies occurring at places guarded by the security firm. The movie was originally developed by Harold Ramis as a vehicle for Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, but after Belushi's death, it would sit dormant for a couple of years until producer Brian Grazer would come upon the project. Grazer, along with friend James Keach, would rewrite the screenplay and would cast John Candy and Tom Hanks in the lead roles. Hanks would drop out, and Levy would team with his once SCTV co-star. John Carpenter was originally attached to direct, before he decided to make Big Trouble in Little China instead, and co-writers and producers Grazer and Keach would hire Lester based on his success with Commando. I'm still not sure how they got, this guy would make an amazing comedy director from Commando, but it is what it is. The final film is so bad, Harold Ramis successfully lobbied the studio to remove his name as an executive producer before it was released, but he was not able to get the Writers Guild to allow him and his writing partner to take their names off of the screenplay. And it's a shame. There was a chance for a good movie here. In addition to teaming Candy and Levy, the film also stars Jonathan Banks, Brian James, Robert Loggia, Kenneth McMillan, Steve Railsback, and Meg Ryan. The movie would open to second place with $4.3 million from 1,552 theaters, but it would quickly drop off the charts after just five weeks, finishing with $14.59 million in ticket sales. Nick Castle's The Boy Who Could Fly from 20th Century Fox tells the story of two teenagers, Millie and Eric, who are brought together through personal tragedies and how they, how they help each other out of their misery and grief. To me, it was quite sappy and over-sentimental for my taste back then, although I admit I haven't seen it since. The reviews were okay when it was released, and it has gained something of a cult following since. The movie would open in 39 theaters this weekend and gross a respectable $204,000, and would slowly add theaters every week, until it finally went into a whitish release with 660 theaters in its seventh week. But the barely $1.6 million gross that week would ensure a quick playout. By week 10, Fox would stop reporting grosses with a final tally of $5.56 million. Hoyt C. Caston's The Dirk Bite Kid from Concord Cinema Group originally opened in some markets in November of 1985 and would finally hit Los Angeles this weekend. It's a silly comedy aimed towards children, featuring A Christmas Story's Peters Billingsley as a young boy who becomes a local hero after he comes to own a magic flying dirt bike. I only find it interesting today because a lot of it was filmed in Los Angeles, and it's funny to me to see how much my hometown has changed over the ensuing 35 years, especially downtown. 
Concord Cinema Group would not release any grosses for this part of their regional release pattern. In 1985, Emir Costa Rica would find himself in the spotlight on the world cinema stage when his movie When Father Was Away on Business unexpectedly won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival against some pretty heavy competition, including Alan Parker's Birdie, Dusan Mikovic's The Coca-Cola Kid, Isvan Svabo's Colonel Riedel, Nicholas Rogue's Insignificance, Herbert Babenko's Kiss of the Spider Woman, Louis Puenzo's The Official Story, Paul Schrader's Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, and Clint Eastwood's Pale Writer. While Father would not become a very successful film financially in the States, international home cinema decided to pick up the American theatrical rights to his 1981 debut film, Do You Remember Dolly Bell? The story follows a young Serbian man during the summer of 1963 as he becomes enthralled with local thugs and criminals based on the movies he's watching in his local cinema. There's a very poor dupe of an old VHS tape of it on YouTube, but you're going to need to know Serbo-Croatian to understand it, as it has no subtitles. David Cronenberg's The Fly from 20th Century Fox. You know, I hate to admit it, but as much as I think that this is a fantastic movie, I've had no desire to ever revisit it again which is par for the course for me when it comes to body horror movies of David Cronenberg. Shivers? I've only seen it once. Rabid? Only seen it once. The Brood? Once. Scanners? Once. Videodrome? Once. Dead Ringers? Once. Naked Lunch? Only once. And I've owned the Criterion DVD since the day it came out. I've at least opened the DVD and read the inserts, even if I've never watched the film again. Crash? Once. In fact, the only Cronenberg movie I've ever seen more than once is The Dead Zone, and it's easily been 20 years since I've seen it, if not longer. I acknowledge Cronenberg is a master at what he does. I'm just not into most of what he does. When I think back about The Fly, it's hard to imagine this being anything else. The screenplay is spot on in its building of tension and suspense, the reframing of the story for modern times is impeccable, the directing and editing are in amazing sync, and the casting of Goldblum and Davis is perfection. Yet we almost had a completely different movie. Fox owned the rights to The Fly because of the 1958 movie, and they weren't too keen on making a remake. Odd, right? Why? Because they didn't like the idea that the hero was becoming the villain. But after a regime change at the studio, Fox was ready to climb aboard, and British filmmaker Robert Bierman would be hired to direct. But a personal tragedy would occur in Berman's family while the movie was in pre-production in the UK, and he would leave. Mel Brooks's production company, Brook Films, would produce the movie, but Brooks himself, like with The Elephant Man six years earlier, would not take a personal credit on the film. And much like he did when he signed David Lynch to make The Elephant Man, Brooks would personally step in to ensure Cronenberg, whom Brooks admired and wanted to work with, took over the film. Cronenberg's agents asked Brooks for $800,000 for their client to direct the movie and another $150,000 to rewrite the script. 
and Brooks came back with an offer of just a straight million dollars. Cronenberg's first choice for Steph Brundle was not Jeff Goldblum, but John Malkovich. When Malkovich declined the role, Cronenberg next went to Richard Dreyfus. When Dreyfus declined, Cronenberg went to Goldblum. So clearly he had a very specific idea of the energy he wanted for Brundle. And while Goldblum and Gina Davis would be dating by this time after co-starring in the 1985 comic horror dud Transylvania 65000, Davis would get the role of Ronnie on her own. Cronenberg was keen to work with her regardless of her relationship with Goldblum. The $13 million film would be shot in and around Cronenberg's hometown of Toronto over the course of 10 weeks in the fall of 1985, and it would only go through a couple of minor changes during post-production. The movie would be released in 1,195 theaters and would open in the number one slot with just over $7 million in ticket sales. It would remain at number one the following week and would stay in the top 10 for two months. After 19 weeks of release, Fox would stop tracking the film. Its final ticket sales tally would be nearly $40.5 million. There was a lot of legitimate talk for Jeff Goldblum getting an Oscar nomination for Best Actor that year, and rightfully so. His performance as Seth Brundle, and what becomes of Brundle after his experiment, is astonishing, even more so under all that Chris Wallace makeup. But he would not get nominated. Some, like Gene Siskel, would claim it was a bias of older Academy members about nominating actors in horror films, although it didn't stop the Academy from nominating Sigourney Weaver this same year for Aliens. The film would only get one nomination for Best Makeup Effects, which it would win, and Chris Wallace would be hired to direct the 1989 sequel, which had some interesting concepts, but couldn't quite bring them all together. In October 1986, Fox would treat movie fans with a packaged double feature of Aliens and The Fly, for Halloween weekend. For 60 years now, Claude Lelouch has been one of France's greatest filmmakers. He made his first movie, Man's Own, in 1960, and he completed his 50th movie, The Best Years of a Life, in 2019. In America, he was best known for his 1966 movie, A Man and a Woman, a beautiful story of love and loss featuring Anouk Ami and Jean-Louis Trontignon which would play in major cities like New York, Los Angeles, Boston, and Seattle for up to 83 continuous weeks. The film would gross nearly $10 million, which would be around $80 million adjusted for inflation today. The film would win the Palme d'Or at the 1966 Cannes Film Festival and would win two Academy, Academy Awards the following spring for Best Foreign Language Film and Best Original Screenplay. Lelouch would be nominated for Best Director and Amy, Best Actress. In the mid-1980s, Lelouch started to wonder what his characters would be up to 20 years later, and he turned that idea into the story and screenplay for A Man and a Woman 20 years later. The man is still pretty much the carefree playboy he fashions himself to be in the public eye, and the woman has moved up from a script supervisor to a filmmaker in her own right, who, after making and releasing an expensive bomb, contacts the man to ask permission to make a movie of their story. There's something magical that happens when Lelouch comes together with Amy and Trontignon 
to make a movie about these two characters. But sadly, 20 years later, American audiences would not be as captivated with a man and a woman as they had been a generation earlier. As much as Warner Brothers did support the movie with a prominent ad campaign in major markets, after nine weeks in theaters, the film would only sell about $227,000 worth of tickets in America. It would be far more successful in Europe. Oh, and that 50th movie made last year? It's actually part three of this series, although it was that The Best Years of a Life. Like 20 years later, The Best Years of a Life would screen out of competition at the Cannes Film Festival and would do decent business in limited release throughout Paris and France. Sadly, it has not been picked up by an American distributor or streaming service. In 1986, Michael Mann was far better known as the creative force behind Miami Vice than as a filmmaker. He had directed 1981's Thief, a realistic look at the life of a safecracker, starring James Caan, and 1983's The Keep, a mess of a sci-fi horror hybrid that had a very troubled and protracted production, but neither of them were commercial successes upon their release. Manhunter would be the first time he'd have the clout to make the movie he wanted to make the way that he wanted to make it, and he would knock it out of the fucking park. It was, still is, and will probably always be the single best movie of all the movies that would come out of the Hannibal Lecter cinematic universe. And it's crazy to think just how much different this movie would have been with a different cast. Instead of William Peterson, producer Dano De Laurentiis, now operating his own studio and distribution company out of North Carolina, wanted Richard Gere, or Mel Gibson, or Paul Newman. But Mann had seen an early cut of William Friedkin's To Live and Die in L.A., and lobby hard for Peterson. And instead of Brian Cox as Lecter, it could have been Brian Dennehy, John Lithgow, Mandy Patinkin, and remember, this would have been right before Patinkin starred as Indigo Montoya in The Princess Bride, or, curiously enough, William Friedkin, who, while an interesting choice, would have brought the wrong energy to the role. Watching Cox, who's only on screen for a couple minutes, and you can't help but see just how much Anthony Hopkins' future performances as Lecter were cribbed from Cox's performance here. And in a, a little ironic sidebar, when Cox was making Manhunter, Hopkins would be playing King Lear at the National Theatre in London. When Hopkins was making Silence of the Lambs, Cox would be playing the same role at the same theatre. In Manhunter... Mann and his cinematographer Dante Spinotti relied heavily on strong color cues and tinting, not unlike what Bernardo Bertolucci and his cinematographer Vittorio Storaro would implement on many of their collaborations from The Conformist to The Last Emperor. Many of the scenes with Peterson's former FBI profiler would be strongly shaded blue, while most of the scenes with Tom Noonan's serial killer would hue green or magenta, some tintings were subtle, and some were... not. The film would also feature Joan Allen, Dennis Farina, Kim Greist, and Stephen Lang. Opening in 779 theaters, Manhunter would gross about $2.2 million, only good enough for 8th place, and would disappear from theaters after few, a few weeks and only $8.62 million in total ticket sales. 
There were two other foreign films that would open on the 22nd. Sandy Wilson's My American Cousin from Spectrafilm is a semi-autobiographical story about a tween girl in British Columbia who wants to be treated like an adult instead of a child and gets exactly what she asks for when her older American cousin arrives in his red convertible Cadillac for the summer. The film would win six Genie Awards, the Canadian equivalent of the Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and two acting awards for its young leads. Nadine Trantignant's Next Summer from European Classics would star the director's ex-husband, Jean-Louis, and their daughter, Marie, alongside three of France's biggest stars, Fanny Ardant, Claudia Cardinal, and Philippe Noreau, who would play the patriarch of a family full of complicated characters and connections. It would not make much of an impact at American theaters, but the family would work together again a few years later on another movie that would be written by the couple's son, Vincent. On August 22nd, Atlantic Releasing would put Robert M. Young's Extremities into theaters. Farrah Fawcett stars as a museum worker in Los Angeles who finds herself inside a living nightmare when her would-be rapist tracks her down and breaks into her apartment. She's able to turn the tables on her attacker, and once she ties him up, starts to subject him to the same kind of mental and physical torture he was using on her. James Russo plays the rapist, and Alfre Woodard and Diana Scarwood play Fawcett's roommates. It's a well-made movie, and it would become the biggest success of Young's directorial career. It was also supposed to remake Farrah Fawcett into an actress, and not just a jiggle queen, but she would get no career bump from her well-received performance. She would be nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Drama, but not the Oscar nod she was hoping for. The film would open to ninth place with $2.3 million from 605 theaters, but would have the second highest per screen average of any movie in wide release that week. It would add 91 theaters in its second week and gross another $2.76 million, but would start to slowly shed theaters and audiences after that, finishing with $13.4 million after 19 weeks. Fred Decker's Night of the Creeps is one of those movies I've never gotten around to seeing, even after spending two years as star Jason Lively's Neighbor Across the Hall in an apartment building in Hollywood in the early 90s. I honestly don't know why I've never seen it. Maybe it's because I'm not a big horror movie nerd. I'm not a fan of zombie movies, and I'm not a fan of movies that spend a lot of energy being blatant homages to other films and other filmmakers. A lot of my friends really love Night of the Creeps. It's developed a strong cult following, and it's got some really good reviews from writers and critics I trust. This would be the debut film from director Decker, who two years later would make another homage-filled movie, The Monster Squad, which he would co-write with his longtime friend Shane Black. Like Night of the Creeps, The Monster Squad would have a short life in theaters and a long afterlife on home video and cable. In the early 90s, Decker would get the chance to direct the third film in the Robocop series. Comics legend Frank Miller, who helped write the second movie in the series, was brought back to help write the third, and he tried to add into his screenplay for Robo 3 a number of the rejected ideas from his screenplay for Robo 2, which were again rejected 
and led Miller to not work on any movie for another 14 years. And then Peter Weller decided he'd rather make Naked Lunch than another robo-movie. Peter John Burke, the star of several Hal Hartley films, was brought in to play Robo, and he's pretty good. But sadly, Orion needed a hit and decided the best thing to do with RoboCop 3 would be to make it a more family-friendly PG-13 movie. A crazy idea to anyone who, you know, has actually seen RoboCop. And then Orion went bankrupt before they could release the film in the spring of 1992, and the film would sit on the proverbial shelf for more than a year and a half. When it, was, when it finally came out in November of 1993, Robocop fans rejected the toned-down violence and rather dull storyline. The film would only gross $10.6 million, the lowest in the series, and Decker still has yet to direct another feature film since. So, yeah, I'm, I'm talking about the director more than his first movie. Small slug-like things turn people into zombies. Many of the characters are named after horror filmmakers. Boy tries to save unrequited love from slugs and zombies. They save the night? Or do they? The film, released by TriStar Pictures, one of two new movies they would release today, would open in 70 theaters nationwide. I found 68 of those in the New York City metro region. I'm not sure where the other two were. But in those 70 theaters, the film would gross nearly $221,000, or $3,154 per screen, which isn't all that bad for 1986. The last weekend of theaters being open nationwide before the coronavirus shut them all down, March 6th through March 8th, the new Ben Affleck movie, The Way Back, had a per screen average of $3,006, And in and around New York City in August 1986, the top ticket price for weekend shows were only $6.50, compared to an average nationwide ticket price of $9.25 during the first quarter of 2020. And in its second week of release, Night of the Creeps would benefit from the Labor Day holiday weekend and see its gross increase nearly 30% from those same 70 theaters. And yet, TriStar would stop tracking grosses after that second weekend, and the film would soon be gone from theaters with only $591,366 in total ticket sales. Toby Hooper's second movie of the summer for Canon Films, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, would arrive in theaters without an MPAA rating, which Canon could get away with not being a signatory of the Motion Picture Association at the time. The film would star Dennis Hopper as Lefty Enright, a former Texas Ranger who is also the uncle of Sally and Franklin from the first film. Lefty has spent the past 14 years looking into the disappearance of his nephew, and he's going to get his revenge by any means necessary. This is the movie that would make Bill Mosley a staple of the horror movie genre for decades, but it would sadly be the last hurrah of sorts for Hooper, at least for cinema. Chainsaw would open in fifth place with $2.8 million from 1,474 theaters, a pretty massive amount of locations for an unrated horror film. The film would play mostly at drive-ins throughout the fall, finishing with $8.025 million in the till. Hooper would direct a couple more poorly received features and spend most of the final 15 years of his life doing some pretty good work on television before passing away in 2017. 
TriStar's second movie this weekend was Robert Mandel's Touch and Go. Like Tom Hanks with nothing in common, this was meant to be Michael Keaton's pivot from comedy to more dramatic material. Keaton would play a star hockey player whose life changes after he almost gets mugged by a gang of young teenagers. The film also stars then-12-year-old A.J. Naidu as the youngest member of the would-be gang and Marita Conchita Alonso as his mother. But Touch and Go would not be quite the success Nothing in Common would become. Touch and Go was originally filmed in late 1984 for Universal Pictures, who would shelve and eventually sell the film off to Columbia Pictures' sister distributor. TriStar would only send the film out to 51 mostly rural theaters, where it would gross an okay $127,000. It would eventually top out a few weeks later with 200 playdates and leave theaters after 10 weeks and $1.254 million in ticket sales. Miramax Films, the then very small independent distribution company, usually opened their new movies in New York City first before opening them in Los Angeles a few weeks later. For some reason, they did the exact opposite with Billy August's 1984 film Twist and Shout, a sequel to his 1983 movie Zappa, which opened at the Cineplex Beverly Center a full five weeks before arriving in the Big Apple. Two friends start a band to meet girls, and they find themselves in a weird love quadrangle when Bjorn falls for Anna and Eric falls for Kirsten, but Kirsten wants Bjorn. The film, which would be Denmark's entry into this year's foreign language film Oscar race, but would not be nominated, would find a small measure of success in America, and August and Miramax would team up for the release of two of his next three films, 1987's Pele the Conqueror, and 1993's The House of the Spirits. West German author and filmmaker Uba Brandner's 1977 drama 5050 would finally get an American theatrical release through New Line Cinema on this day, opening at the Talia Theater on the Upper West Side of New York City. Hans-Peter Hallwachs plays an architect in Munich going through a severe midlife crisis. Brandner shot his movie in black and white to compound the sense of impending disaster in his lead character's life. On Wednesday, August 27th, a pair of independent films would make their theatrical debuts in New York City. Anthony Simmons's Black Joy from Oakwood Entertainment opened at the Embassy 3 in Times Square, nearly nine years after it made its debut in its home country of Britain. It's a drama about a young man from Guyana who learns the ways of the big city when he moves to the Brixton section of London, where many other West Indian natives have settled. The film received decent reviews upon its release, and you can watch it now on Amazon Prime, although they, for some unknown reason, have it listed as being directed by two-time Bond director Martin Campbell, who co-produced the film. Dan Bessie's Hard Traveling from New World Pictures opened at the Embassy 72nd Street Theater on the west side. Bessie adapted his screenplay from his father Alva's 1941 novel Bread and a Stone. If you don't know the name Alva Bessie, he was one of the Hollywood Ten, a group of screenwriters who were jailed and blacklisted from Hollywood for refusing to openly testify when they were called before the House Un-American Activities Committee. 
Alva Bessie would never work in Hollywood again, although he would find some success as a novelist satirically deriding Hollywood and its double standards. Alva Bessie would assist his son in helping to get hard traveling in front of the cameras before he would pass away in 1985. Ellen Gere stars as a widowed mother of two in Depression-era America who falls for J.E. Freeman's uneducated janitor and must deal with the fallout of her new love being accused of murder. August 29th, the final weekend of the summer movie season, would end with a thud, helping to create the now-accepted truth that studios dump their embarrassments on Labor Day weekend so they can be summarily ignored and forgotten. Rennie Harlan's debut film, Born American, from Cinema Group, was supposed to be a Chuck Norris movie, except there would be a delay in production due to a loss of funding. When the producers finally found a new source of money, Chuck Norris would not be available to make the movie, so Harlan and his co-writer would jigger the script and cast Norris's son Mike as the lead. Even without Norris Pear, Born American would still be the most expensive movie made in Finland. The younger Norris would star as one of three American students on vacation in Finland who are taken captive by Soviet forces after they cross into communist Russia for shits and giggles. The movie would become Cinema Group's largest release in terms of playdates. The movie would open on 1,071 screens and would gross a decent $2.225 million. Good enough for ninth place this weekend, but it would quickly drop from there. In its remaining 16 weeks in theaters, the film would gross a combined $1.16 million more. Paul Lynch's Bullies from Universal Studios was probably never going to be a hit film. It's a Canadian wannabe version of the Romeo and Juliet story with Olivia Diabo as the young woman who must keep her romance with the son of her father's rival secret. And believe it or not, the Canadian version of the movie is far more violent than the American version. Six minutes had to be cut from the film to secure an R rating in America. The reviews for the film were pretty atrocious, and the film would open in 13th place with $1.53 million from 1,005 screens. After a few months on the drive-in circuit, Bullies would finish a few thousand dollars short of $3 million. Tom DeSimone's Reform School Girls from New World Pictures wanted to be a parody of the then-re-emerging women-in-prison movie genre, but it's just stupid trash at every level. Yet, it's also one of the longest-playing movies of the 1980s, but not because anyone actually wanted to see it. New World was able to talk a few drive-ins to keep playing it as the B-title with a more popular movie for more than two years. But the final gross would reflect its stinker status, with just over $2.5 million in grosses. That's an average weekly gross of $20,410 over the course of two years, including an opening weekend of 36 theaters in and around New York City's tri-state area and 40-plus screens in and around the Los Angeles metropolitan region. And at many hardtop theaters in Los Angeles, not just drive-ins, Reform School Girls opened as the second title of a double feature with Rennie Harlan's Born American. And on other screens, it would be the first title of a double feature with David Winter's Thrashin', which we'll get to in a moment. But first, we must spend a moment 
And I only mean a moment talking about Jim Goddard's Shanghai Surprise for MGM. This was one of the worst films from George Harrison's production company, Handmade Films, which originally started to help the Pythons make their second film, Monty Python's Life of Brian, when EMI Films pulled out of an agreement to finance it. In the ensuing 10 years, Handmade would get such films as The Long Good Friday, The Missionary, Mona Lisa, and Time Bandits get made. And after this disastrous teaming of the then-husband-and-wife team of Sean Penn and Madonna, Handmade would redeem themselves by helping to make Five Corners, How to Get Ahead in Advertising, and With Nail and I. Actually, now that I've looked at the list of all the movies made by Handmade during Harrison's ownership of 1979 to 1991, Shanghai Surprise is the worst movie they were involved with. It's also one of the worst films of 1986, hands down, and would only open with $730,000 from 401 theaters. These few sentences are probably the most anyone has talked about this film in years, and hopefully this will be the last time I will ever talk about it, unless one of my best friends, former roommate and one-time film jerk contributor Dick Hollywood, talks me into doing an episode on handmade films, as he's been trying to do. And then there's Joseph Losey's Steaming, which would open at the Baronet Theater across the street from the flagship Bloomingdale store on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, two years after the British director's death. Diana Doors, Sarah Miles, and Vanessa Redgrave are amongst a group of women who meet at a rundown public bathhouse in London to kvetch about their lives and help empower each other. Okay, Thrashin from Fry's Entertainment. Josh Brolin was not director David Winter's first choice to play the amateur skateboarder who comes to Los Angeles to compete in an underground competition. Winters, who had cast Sherilyn Fenn in a supporting role, was quite keen on her boyfriend to play the lead, a little-known actor named Johnny Depp. But his producers didn't like Depp and pushed Brolin on the filmmaker as the lead. Due to his casting in this film... Brolin would have to turn down the leading role in a new television show that was about to start on the then-fledgling new network, Fox, called 21 Jump Street. You can guess who got the lead role. Thrashin would also star Robert Russler and Pamela Gidley and would feature an early on-screen performance by the original members of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. The soundtrack would also feature Animotion, the Bangles, The Circle Jerks, Devo, Fear, Fine Young Cannibals, and Meatloaf to give you a clue of just how disjointed this movie is. However, there were two good non-studio, non-American movies released this weekend. One was Eric Romer's Weekend, which we covered in the third episode of our recent Orion Pictures miniseries. The other was Derek Jarman's Caravaggio, a fictionalized retelling of the life of, of Baroque painter Michelangelo Marisi de Caravaggio. Dexter Fletcher stars as the younger version of the painter and Nigel Terry as the older version. The movie is notable today as being the film debut for both Sean Bean and Tilda Swinton, who would work with Jarman again several more times before his untimely passing in 1994 from an AIDS-related illness including 1989's War Requiem, which would also star Sir Laurence Olivier 
in his final film appearance. And that concludes the breakdown of films released in August of 1986. The month was an important crossroad for me as well. I had really enjoyed my summer working at the movies, but I was planning on returning to Los Angeles after Labor Day, going back to school and continue trying to break into the film industry. But then my boss Joe, who you might remember from the first episode of this miniseries, had fired me before I had even started working, and agreed to give me a two-week reprieve, offered me a position as an assistant manager. I could go to the local junior college up there, Cabrillo College, during the day and work nights at the theater. I'd get a sizable bump in pay, more power than an 18-year-old should possibly have, and most importantly, he instilled in me the confidence that I had the potential to become a general manager soon after I turned 21, which actually did happen. But that's going to be another story for another time. I'm sure I'll get to it if the pandemic lasts a while longer. For the next episode, I'm going to do something new for this podcast, a show dedicated to one single movie, Tapeheads, starring Tim Robbins and John Cusack, a personal favorite from 1988 that I can admit is not a great movie. I haven't seen it in nearly 20 years, so it'll be interesting to see if it still meant as much to me at 52 as it did at 20 or at 35 when I was still harboring fantasies about being a filmmaker. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk podcast has been written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens. As we are an independent podcast without sponsors or a network of websites to help promote the show, we rely on word of mouth to get the word out about the show. Please, help get the word out. Please post about the Film Jerk podcast on your socials. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast source. Good ratings and reviews help get the podcast higher rankings, which help the show get seen by more potential listeners. And as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on this podcast page at filmjerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at Filmjerk. The Filmjerk podcast has been a production of Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. Mm-hmm.